Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Russian courts have levied fines of more than 2.3 million dollars this year alone against the Moscow Bureau of the U.S.-funded international broadcaster Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, for failing to label all of its content as the work of, quote, foreign agents. The Kremlin's campaign against RFRL has prompted U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to release a statement on Twitter expressing, quote, concern over Russia's efforts to close Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and silence this valued source of international reporting. RFRL has been broadcasting to the Soviet Union and to Russia for nearly seven decades, since March 1953, with its first major story being the death of Joseph Stalin. It's covered major historical events, including the Berlin crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the emergence of the dissident community, detente, perestroika, and the breakup of the Soviet Union with distinction. But in fact, RFERL has only been physically present in Russia since 1991, when then President Boris Yeltsin signed a decree granting it permission to open up a bureau in Moscow. Before that, it broadcast from Munich. Today, RFRL's Russian service has more than 50 full-time staffers in Moscow and a network of more than 300 freelancers across the country's 11 time zones. It also has a 24-hour television and digital channel that broadcasts in the Russian language to more than 20 countries. So what is the future of this venerable institution, and what does the current crisis tell us about the state of Russian domestic politics and the escalating conflict between Moscow and the West? Today we'll hear from two people who are very much on the front lines in this struggle, so please stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the awesome city of Berlin is RFRL's president, Jamie Fly. Welcome to The Vertical, Jamie. It's great to see you. Great to be with you, Brian. Thanks for joining us. And also with us from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's broadcast headquarters in the beautiful Czech capital of Prague is Kirill Suhotsky, RFRL's regional director for Europe, which oversees the Russian service. Welcome, Kirill. It's great to have you back on. It's been way too long. Thanks, Brian. It's good It's good to see you and to hear you again. So yeah, thanks no, great, for inviting me back. Great to see back. you as well. So full disclosure here, as both of my guests know, I'm not exactly a neutral observer in this situation, as many of our listeners probably also know as well. As I'm proud to say, I spent 11 wonderful years at RFRL from 2007 to 2018. They were probably the best 11 professional years of my life, and I believe deeply in RFRL's mission and care deeply about its future and that of its employees. So with that out of the way... Um, I also want to say I have some strong opinions about the current situation, which will come out um, in due time. But first, Jamie, just to get us started, I want to give basically just give you an open mic to set the table. What is the situation as we speak? What are your thoughts as RFRL's president about the best way to move forward given this very difficult situation? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for that opening. Uh, and it's great to be with, especially a former RFRL uh, employee. 
We face a, a critical moment here in our history of our efforts to provide objective news and information to the Russian audience. As you noted, we were invited into the country 30 years ago this year by President Yeltsin. Uh, and during the Putin era, I think we've seen a initially slow targeting of our ability to operate in the country, which has rapidly accelerated in recent years and accelerated incredibly quickly in just the last six months with this invasive labeling requirement, which we believe would essentially insert Roskolnadzor, the media regulator, into our editorial decision-making about how to portray our content for the Russian audience, which is why we as a company have decided that we cannot in good faith comply with this uh, requirement. And uh, that has resulted in us being fined to the tune of 2.3 million dollars in a critical phase ahead of us in several weeks where uh, if we don't pay the fines and we don't have any intention of paying the fines, and if we don't comply and we don't intend to comply, we will face potential criminal liability for our failure to go along with this uh, labeling scheme. And that could create an opening for the Russian authorities to close our bank accounts, raid the bureau, shut down our operations. Uh, and we're pursuing every legal and political avenue to try to prevent that from happening. Now, I want to just for the benefit of our, our listeners who may not be familiar with the minutiae of Russian legislation, the Russian Federation passed a law requiring certain entities which receive funding from foreign governments, including media organizations, to label themselves as foreign agents. Um, I remember when this was passed um, and, and I was an employee at RFERL. But this, what they're doing with RFERL now kind of goes beyond what this law even initially uh, called for. Is that correct, Jamie? Yeah, the initial requirements, which we have, we're never happy, obviously, about the foreign agent designation, although we receive our funding from the U.S. Congress, we value our editorial independence. You know from working at RFRL how seriously yes. the company <laughs> takes its editorial independence, how the even the company management does not tell our individual language services what to cover on a daily basis. Um, so we value our objectivity. We never liked the foreign agent designation. But we went along with the initial high-level labeling because we wanted to be able to stay in the country. We wanted to be able to report from the ground for the Russian people. But we've seen a constant evolution of the requirements under that foreign agent law. And we felt that this latest effort last fall was a bridge too far and would ultimately undermine our credibility with the Russian audience because of how invasive it was. And it was clearly designed to target our growing audience, especially online and especially through social media platforms. And uh, like I said, we don't believe that it's Roskomnadzor's job to be telling us how to describe ourselves to the Russian audience on a daily basis and uh, to be limiting our ability to access uh, whoever we want inside Russia. So if, as you said, there's no intention of complying with this, does this create potential criminal exposure for your 50 staffers in Moscow and 300 stringers across the country? It presents certainly criminal liability for our Russian entity. And we have several corporate officers of that Russian entity who could be exposed. Our individual journalists, it's our understanding, cannot legally be held liable for the company's decision not to label. Now, the challenge is in Russia, in uh, alongside the broader uh, company designation that they've pursued, they've also passed an individual foreign agent law. So individual journalists with foreign media outlets 
can be targeted under that individual foreign agent law. And we've already had several of our freelancers targeted and uh, told that they should register as individual foreign agents and potentially face penalties if they do not comply with that individual foreign agent law. I want to bring Kirill into the discussion now. Kirill, as I noted in the intro, as regional director for Europe, you you will oversee the Russian service, and you recently returned from a trip to Moscow. How do you assess the situation at this point? Same question I threw to Jamie, but also on a human level. How are your 50 staffers in Moscow and your 300-plus stringers and, and, and freelancers across the country holding up in this very difficult situation? Thanks, Brian. I came, I came from Moscow just a week ago, uh, and I spent, uh, spent a few weeks there um, talking to our people, talking to everybody who's working in the bureau and in the field. Uh, it is difficult. It is difficult for them because they are RFRL journalists, but also they are patriots of their country. They want Russia. They are all Russian. Um, so it's not like foreign agents that they're kind of foreign nationals who were, um, I don't know, parachuted into Russia to execute the will of a foreign government. No, they are all very passionate, who believe in their country, who believe in the future of that country, and who want their fellow citizens to get unbiased, uncensored, independent information. And it is the situation in Russia that the audience there, the population there cannot get it elsewhere. You know, that's the tragic thing about it. So they are very passionate and they're very sad to see what is happening in their country. But they're very brave and uh, they do go and they do cover the protests and they do cover the um, all the crimes that are being committed by the um, some people loyal to the Kremlin. So uh, they, they have been with us for quite some time. Uh, let me give you one example. Um, Mikhail Sokolov, who's one of the faces of the Russian service. So he spent, you know, during the 1991 coup, uh, he spent several days in a wine house broadcasting live 24-7 uh, to the outside outside of that building and effectively to Russia. So when Boris Yeltsin won, Mikhail Sokolov was one of the first to have a sit-down interview with him. And when Yeltsin spoke to Mikhail, it was one of his first decrees as president of Russia on August 28th, 1991, to establish the RFERL Bureau in uh, Moscow. Uh, so it was one of his first decrees. It's, you know, it is hanging framed uh, yes. on, on, on the wall. I, I, I remember uh, and it. Now, and now, 30 years later, it is the same Mikhail Sokolov. You know, it's kind of completing the circle. He's now, you know, I met him pretty much every day in the bureau who is now under threat in this very bureau that um, he remembers Boris Yeltsin telling him, you know, welcome, and you can now work safely in Russia. So the circle has completed, and now we are back there. But we do not aim to, you know, we intend to keep the bureau open, and we intend to keep, you know, we owe it to the Russian audiences to do that. So uh, we will continue as long as it takes and uh, we will do everything to report news from within Russia to the um, to the Russian audiences. So they um, there is a threat, but people are, you know, they told me that they're ready to fight and they're ready to withstand that threat and they're ready to keep reporting about all that. This is the inflection point in Russia. This is a crucial point. This is not something that is just happening. 
And uh, Russia is at the crossroads. Nobody knows what will happen 12 months from now. The one thing that I will say is that we've become victims of our success. We have 24-7 video television network broadcasting online and on cable networks in some countries, not in Russia. And uh, we broadcast Alexei Navalny's return. We were on a plane with him. We broadcast live his arrest at the Sheremetyo airport. And then we broadcast live all the protests. For that, 42 million people watched our live coverage. Mm -hmm. So that just tells you that we are needed there. There is a niche for us, and we will continue doing that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised knowing Misha Sokolov that he's, 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 he wants to fight. That doesn't surprise me one bit. Please give my best to all of all of these people who I, you know, do know on a personal level. I wanted to pick up on something you said, Kirill, and kind of get both you and Jamie to weigh in, and because you said we're going to stay, we're going to keep the bureau open, and this is the this is the million dollar question right now because in a lot of ways things are kind of coming full circle. At the moment when we thought a new era of freedom was at hand for Russia. Radio Free Europe was invited in to open a bureau. Right now, as we think Vladimir Putin's going, Russia is going in in a very different direction, it looks like that era of RFE operating on the ground in Moscow is about to end. And this is this is the eternal question. We used to talk about it back when I was at RFE, when the Russian service was under not the kind of pressure it was under now, but nevertheless, it was under pressure at the time. The should I stay or should I go question, right? It's always great when you can paraphrase the clash on the air. I mean, I my feeling on this and for what it's worth is that we did this during the Cold War from Munich. We didn't do it. Our predecessors did this from Munich during the Cold War. We didn't have a presence on the ground in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And nevertheless, it worked. RFRL provided objective news and information to the Soviet people without being on the ground. And I was thinking, why should we be twisting ourselves, or why should RFE, I can't help but continue, even two, three years out of the company, I still think of it as, as part of me. Um, but uh, why should RFE try to continue twisting itself into a pretzel, complying with these absurd Kafka-esque regulations that, quite frankly, you're never going to satisfy them because these things are designed to basically make life as difficult as possible for you. Um, you can label every sentence in your content foreign agent, you know, this is a foreign agent sentence, and then they'll make you label every word, and then they'll say you have to grow a mustache and you know spin around on your head. Why continue to do this? Why not just move the bureau to Vilnius, Riga, Tallinn, Kiev? You know, there are other other environs where this could happen from. I always love the idea of Riga. Um, for a lot of different reasons, because Riga, of course, was where the U.S. diplomatic mission was located before the United States uh, recognized uh, the USSR. Um, it was where George Kennan wrote his long, his famous long telegram. So I, I like Riga, but any of the above, why not move the bureau out of Moscow? Jamie, I'm going to go to you first on this, since you're the president. How, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a valid point, and it may come to that, unfortunately, given where things are headed with the Kremlin right now. But I think the company has taken the decision, even predating me, that as long as we weren't compromising our principles, as long as as ridiculous the requirements were, they didn't uh, require us to give up our independence or objectivity, it was worth trying to fight it out and stay on the ground, partly because the types of journalism that we've been doing recently in Russia and succeeding at require reporters on the ground, mm -hmm. coverage of live events, coverage of protests, live coverage of Navalny's return, as Kirill noted, local and regional reporting, which were one of the few organizations 
uh, that can do across the country because of our extensive network of freelancers. That has drawn a significant audience. And, you know, the RFERL story since uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union has been one of moving out into the field, of establishing bureaus, right. of journalists based forward deployed, not sitting back, always in comfortable Prague, but being out there with the audience. And so we, we thought it was important to try to continue to do that for as long as possible. But now, I think with this latest requirement, we've made very clear that we believe that this crosses our red lines, and it may require us to go back to more of that Cold War sort of approach, which, as you said, I kind of feel it's in the organization's DNA. We know how to do this. We've done it in other countries, even more recently, where we've All been right. kicked out. And we will adapt and for the digital age and make sure that even if we have less access inside Russia, we're still providing objective news and information that's relevant to people's daily lives. And you know, we'll work harder to do it. We'll double down our efforts. And as Kirill noted, we have no intention of abandoning the Russian audience, quite to the contrary. If anything, I think the Kremlin thinks that they're solving a problem by getting rid of us. Uh, they're more likely to actually uh, encourage us to get greater support for our efforts and uh, greater resources, hopefully, to be able to expand our outreach to the Russian people in the years uh, ahead. Yeah, no, there's just, it is, I mean, in a kind of a twisted way, it's kind of a great advertisement for our VRL in Russia right now to be opposed by the Kremlin because of where the society is going in terms of, you know, if you look at public opinion. And my position on this, it's it's a strong opinion. I've expressed it as an employee of our VRL and as a former employee, but it's not theological. Right. I see the arguments on the other side. Curl, I want you to weigh in on this. And also, I would like you both to talk about the safety and security of the staff in Russia. I mean, if you had to pull out either because the Kremlin kicked you out or that are if you made a preemptive decision to do that. I mean, there's, there's got to be contingencies to make sure that the staff and the journalists in Russia, both in Moscow and you know across Russia's 11 time zones, can be either safely you know brought out of the country as well, because we're not just talking about moving equipment and studios and microphones and TV cameras. We're talking about people. And so how if you could also speak to that, Kirill, in this context? Yeah, obviously, as uh, Jamie said, we want to be inside Russia because this is crucial. Um, however, in this, uh, we are, of course, dependent on the goodwill of our host government. Uh, and that goodwill is obviously now lacking because we're just seeing a state-sponsored assault on our ability to operate on the ground. So, of course, we are thinking what can happen. and uh, But for now, it's... I don't know. It's it's really it's really important to to be inside, but we need to think you know several steps ahead, and also to be more sophisticated than we were even during the darkest days of the Cold War. Because during the Cold War, it was difficult, but in a in a way, it was simpler because there was one state narrative, and you could provide one counter narrative. And now there are thousands of state narratives and there are millions of counter narratives. And it is so easy to get lost there for an audience member. Uh, as I said many times, you know, these, uh, the Russian propaganda is built not only on lies, they don't need to lie. You know, they don't need to convince you in something. All they want is to convince you that it's not they don't try to convince that they're right and that they tell the truth. They want you to convince that nobody's telling nobody's the truth. Nobody's telling the truth, yeah. So so this is this is the ultimate 
you know, motives. They, they don't need to lie. They need to twist and uh, turn and just play all those games with smoke and mirrors. So, um, so here it will be more difficult for us, but also there are more opportunities because before, you know, you could strip off the access and we won't be able to see that. And now everybody is a journalist with a smartphone, even if they don't know it yet. So there could be citizen journalists, there could be people providing us with footage. We will still know now it's pretty much impossible to hide anything. You know, Russia is moving the troops to the Ukraine border, and there are dozens of videos how that is happening in real time. And we could be a place where at some point, maybe, you know, now there are other brave journalists, there are TV Rain, there are Nova Gazeta, there are others. But at some point they are within Russia and they can be controlled by the Russian authorities. And um, at some point down the line, we may be the only ones whom Russians may turn to for objective news as information as it was during the Cold War. So it is a challenge, but also it is an opportunity for us to be creative and to be mindful of the time that we're living and to adapt to our younger audience. Yeah, now, Kirill, I very much appreciate your distinction there with the Cold War and in, in, in the current situation where there was one Soviet, very crude Soviet narrative that was actually relatively easy to fight back against. Now you have these multiple narratives and this attempt to create a kind of unrestrained relativism. I call it a postmodern Cold War. And in fact, that's the working title of a book I'm working on at the moment. Jamie, I wanted you to weigh in on the safety and security of the staff and like contingency plans to get them out. Because this is something I, I was on a call uh, with some Russian opposition figures yesterday talking about this and one of the things that was raised is like the logistical nightmares if our if you had to pull out either forced or you know by our own choice you do have a logistical nightmare of potentially having to get those people out or 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 they could be in you know facing criminal liability or even physical danger yeah i mean obviously worrying about the safety and security of our journalists is a significant part of my job since it's not my job to be dictating uh, editorial decisions on a daily basis so I'm incredibly focused on that, and it is our top priority within the company, wherever we operate. And we've got security challenges across our coverage area because all of the countries we operate in present these sorts of issues. In Russia, we will obviously take whatever measures we need to take to protect our corporate officers, anyone who could be held criminally liable. We've made legal assistance available to freelancers who face this issue related to individual foreign agent requirements. And as Kirill noted, we're gonna make sure we're looking around the corner at different contingencies that we can continue our programming. If that requires people to relocate, to move to other places where we can ensure that they can operate unaffected by anything that may happen to the Bureau, we will do that. But ultimately, as, as Kirill highlighted, these are Russian citizens. Mm -hmm. These are people who are loyal to their country, who have lives inside Russia. These are not foreign nationals who are going to be ready right. to jump on the next plane and get out of the country and leave their lives behind. And so I think for most of our staff, there's an intense interest in staying inside Russia, no matter what happens to the Bureau, of continuing to try to do independent journalism, despite the potential risks. Uh, and it's been quite heartening for me to see, you know, the, the fantastic work that they've continued to produce 
Under these circumstances, most recently, just yesterday, with extensive coverage across all of our platforms of the Navalny protest, for instance, out in the streets, conducting interviews, producing amazing content for uh, the Russian people and content which is not being done by many of our competitors inside the Russian market. Kirill, you're in close contact with all these staffers, I think, more than anybody. What is the feeling about this? I know you say they're determined to stay and all that, but if if push came to shove, would your staffers and your journalists be you know, okay with like relocating to Riga or Vilnius? Or would they be very resistant to that? Like like Jamie said, these are these are Russian citizens, these are Russian patriots who care deeply about their country. They don't want to leave. I had a, a similar conversation with Vladimir Milov on this program last week about this painful, deeply personal decision about staying or going. There's some precedent for this. Um, when Ria Novosti was taken over by the Kremlin and turned into a propaganda outlet, and in the past it was actually one of the better news agencies in Russia, a lot of their staff moved to Riga and formed Medusa. Right. So there is some precedent for this in Russian media. What's the thinking of your staff on that? And some of those staff now work for us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of I can't talk for individual uh, yeah, journalists no, and they have all different circumstances. But I think there is so much perseverance and there is so much dedication to their mission. Taking independent news to Russian audience is uh, is in their blood, and uh, they want to do it, whatever it takes. So as of now, we are all in Russia. What will happen next will happen next. But it was very interesting to talk to all of them when I was in Moscow. Um, there was uh, one journalist who came to me and said, you know what? I'm willing to do even more. Uh, you know, I'm willing to help this program or I'm willing to help this broadcast. I'm ready to take on this responsibility. It is unnerving time, but let's do this. And this is exactly the attitude that I'm proud of all our journalists for. Yeah, and the Russian service itself is so, in so many ways, is the biggest service in RFE, and it's so central because so many of the other language services, you know, does do rely on on content from the Russian service because what happens in Russia affects their countries in in quite obvious ways that don't need to be elaborated on. Before we move on, I want to hit two more things before we move into the second half and put this in a broader context. But I mean, one is that, and this is something I dealt with as an RFE employee all the time, is these ridiculous false equivalencies are out there that you know RFE is just the American version of our or Sputnik, right? And we hear this ridiculous false equivalency all the time. And even now, when I'm reading news reports and these attempts at objectivity, where you say, well, in the US, RT and Sputnik are forced to label themselves as foreign agents too. I'm not sure if that's even true, but I did read that in one wire report I was looking at yesterday. How do you deal with this false equivalency? Is there kind of a a public relations piece to this where RFE needs to kind of brand itself with the Russian people as not, not just this American version of RT, which is false. It's a complete false equivalency, but it's a false equivalency that a lot of people believe. A lot of people even here in the States and in Europe that should know better. I think it is something that the certainly the Kremlin has tried to push this narrative. I, I'd be interested in Kirill's thoughts about the impact inside Russia. I'm not sure it's actually limited us ultimately all that much with the Russian audience. When Russian officials, including on my trip last year, have raised this with me, I've always told them, I wish I had the access inside <laughs> Russia that RT and Sputnik have, have in the United, the United States. States. Despite the fact that the Kremlin likes to try to draw parallels between the foreign agent framework in the United States and the Russian system, although the Russian system 
even if you put the two laws up against each other, has now clearly evolved beyond the U.S. There's right. not invasive labeling required of RT and Sputnik. There is limited labeling required, which as far as I've been told, they're not even doing, right. according to the U.S. FARA. But they have not had any restrictions imposed on them in terms of their ability to put their content in front of the American people. Sputnik in recent years has been partnering with local radio stations, actually expanding mm -hmm. its reach on the uh, radio airwaves. Radio Liberty lost access to the radio airwaves in Russia years ago. Yes. Current Time, which is a top-notch product, has never been able to get on satellite packages in Russia, whereas RT is available to any American that wants to get it on satellite. It's available in any hotel room in the United States. So there's always been this lack of balance in terms of access, in terms of the actual requirements. And then the fundamental difference, obviously, which we all know, having worked at RFERL, is the editorial independence. We take our editorial independence seriously. The company actually in the coming weeks is going to be posting our full standards guidelines online for everyone to see, which is a new development. I would uh, challenge RT and Sputnik to do the same, <laughs> to show us uh, their standards and the policies that they adhere to. Um, there's just no comparison if you look at the way that they are managed, their connections to the Kremlin, compared to the fact that we get a grant from the U.S. Congress under a statute which clearly enshrines our editorial right. independence in law. Yeah, no, and they are in fact foreign agents in the most obvious definition of that term. Kirill, your thoughts on this, this false equivalency? It's all part of this kind of postmodern Cold War that we were talking about a moment ago. Yeah, but RT has four bureaus in the United States broadcasting in two languages, in English and Spanish. And we are now struggling or fighting to save one. And we cannot get on cable networks. They still threaten us to with blocking our websites or platforms or constantly demand removals, this or that article or video. And again, you know, our editors, you know, nobody can tell me what to do in the journalism. And the service directors of the journalists, they will not take political directives from anybody, including myself, you know, okay, you need to cover this or today we're covering this, or this is how this issue should be covered, because they're guiding by Western standards of independent journalism. But with RT and Sputnik, and, you know, I know some people who were uh, not smart enough to go and work for them and then left. And what they described, what is going in those newsrooms, well, this is, this is not journalism that I would do for any money. Yeah, no, as somebody that sat in probably thousands of editorial meetings at RFRL, I know the editorial independence is taken really seriously. It's so hard to convince outsiders of this, quite frankly, though it's to the point where it's somehow infuriating. Before we move on, one last thing I want to do, and I know we've got to be careful about like making policy wrecks because because of RFE's unique position, but like what what can the U.S. government do in response to this? I'm, I'm sure you're in contact with people on the Hill. Um, what can the U.S. government do to, to help RFE in this situation? I think we've already seen a lot of, especially from the new administration, statements of support. I know that they've expressed concerned publicly and privately about the Kremlin's treatment of our operations in Moscow. But ultimately, if the United States, the Congress is committed to independent media in Russia, supporting beleaguered journalists in Russia, it's going to require more resources. And 
whatever happens with the fate of our bureau, it's going to require people to take a stand, to speak out, to work in concert with allies like the Europeans, to support not just RFERL, I'm always happy for more resources and more support, um, but also to support small, local, independent outlets that may not be focused right now on maintaining one bureau, but they just have a small operation, they're doing great reporting, but they're at even greater risk than RFERL is in terms of you know their ability to survive and to continue their work, both to get funded and then also that's very easy for the state to come in and just shut them down. And so I think it requires all kinds of action on multiple levels. And we've seen early signs that this administration is committed to supporting independent media and standing up for journalists around the world. And I hope they continue to do that in Russia in the years ahead, regardless of what happens with our presence in Moscow. Yeah, no, I, I can say as somebody who's you know, in Washington, I'm involved in like three different Russia working groups or contact groups that meet kind of regularly. And I'm noticing now in each meeting, RFE is coming up like more and more and more frequently in each of the discussions as an issue. So it's on the radar. That's for sure. Um, and that's a good point to segue into our second half here. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and place the Kremlin's war on RFERL in the broader context of Vladimir Putin's crackdown on dissent at home and his escalating conflict with the West abroad. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the awesome city of Berlin is RFURL's president, Jamie Fly, and also with us from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's broadcast headquarters in the beautiful Czech capital of Prague, which I miss dearly, is Kirill Suhotsky, RFURL's regional director for Europe, which oversees the beleaguered Russian service. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it really helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушает. В России Послушайте сегодня вступают сейчас. в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Делаю Я уже о безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. Владимир Путин's war on RFERL is, of course, not happening in isolation. It's happening amidst a general crackdown on dissent in Russia. It's happening at a time when many fear that opposition leader Alexei Navalny could die in prison. It's happening when leading opposition figures like Vladimir Milov are leaving the country to continue their fight from the West, something he announced to the world on this program a week ago. And it's happening as Russia is massing troops in the Ukrainian border and amidst an escalating conflict with the West. Kirill, back in the day, I used to have you on as a regular guest on this podcast when it was hosted by RFURL because, well, you're a pretty savvy and astute observer of uh, an analyst of Russian politics. How do you see what is happening to RFURL right now within this broader context that I just outlined? This is just madness. Because what is happening in Russia now, it's it became really hard to predict. Because I think for all those years and a couple of decades that we've all been watching Russia, we pretty much knew what the rules of the games are. Those rules were changing, but, you know, times were changing with them, but we knew kind of where the red lines are, what mm -hmm. to expect. 
And then there was a moment, I don't know when this moment was, it looks like something like summer 2020, mm. where something happened and uh, these rules stopped applying. And then from then onwards, everything started to develop in a horrifyingly quick pace. And the red lines have shifted and we are now trying to figure out where exactly, and we still don't know. You know, Navalny almost getting killed and surviving by accident, that was not possible, you yeah, know, know, all the decade before. You know, because it was a running joke in Moscow that the block where Navalny lived in the district of Marino in Moscow, that was the safest block in the whole of <laughs> Moscow. Um, because he was watched and guarded so nobody could, you know, so he doesn't become that what is known in, in Russia's sacral victim. But then, and that's how he probably has miscalculated, because when he was returning to Russia, he was thinking this, you know, along the lines what had been happening for 10 years prior. And I don't think he thought he would be arrested because in the world that we knew before, he wouldn't be. Or and, he would be uh, in release very quickly. Or Yeah. So they did not dare to jail him before. They, you know, so it was all like this. And suddenly, so he didn't understand that when they tried to kill him, that was a signal that red lines have shifted. And then, you know, you see, and there is a real concern for his life, where he is now. And then the campaign that started against us, started against Navalny's foundation for Bekaa, against independent media, against everybody else, has just started going at a really frightening pace. Jamie's mentioned the uh, small outlets across Russia in the regions and the journalists. And one of the most horrifying incidents that I can recall recently, and that falls into that pattern, is a case of Irina Slavina, of uh, a journalist in Nizhny Novgorod, a fearless independent journalist. And then the authorities started to apply so much pressure on her and on her small outlets that she just went into the central square and self-immolated. Yeah. So this is the desperation that is now be set on Russia. And looking at our yesterday's coverage, people on the streets, why they're protesting, people just say we're fed up. And also they said, look, Russia is going into a really dark and scary place. Mm -hmm. And that train is getting speed. Um, so this is, when I say this is madness, this is really madness what is happening. But what is really maddening is that we don't know what to do this and what the new rules of the games are. Yeah, no, Kirill, I think I wasn't joking when I said you're an incredibly astute observer of Russian politics because that, that nails it. I mean, I began to see this trend starting when Putin returned to the Kremlin in 2012 with the castling, right? But it was moving kind of, the train was moving very slowly, but it was moving in an unmistakable direction. And it began accelerating, of course, with the invasion of Ukraine, which was a crossing of one red line that I didn't think was going to be crossed, but it was. It accelerated more with the assassination of Nemtsov, you know, a former first deputy prime minister and, and at one time considered to be a potential president of the Russian Federation, killed within, you know, shouting distance of the Kremlin. That was another red line. Because in the past, yeah, opposition leaders of the stature of a Boris Nemtsov, you could beat him up and throw him in jail for a few hours, but you, you don't kill him. Right? There was an unwritten rule, and I remember the, the commentary in the Russian press at the time about that. And this has been continuously accelerating, but you're right. Last summer, 
it really the train really began to pick up speed to the point where it's like a Japanese bullet train headed towards crazy land right now. And that's that's what I think we're seeing. I also think what we're seeing is something I mean, I'm asked and you probably are, too. Every time I do a media appearance is like, you know, is Putin going to fall? When's Putin going to fall? And I, I've stopped answering this question because it's ridiculous. I think we're moving into what I call the crisis of late Putinism. This regime has effectively lost the initiative, and we're headed into the, you know, you know, the second period of stagnation, which we saw in the late Brezhnev period. That's what I think we're seeing right now. Putin's lost the urban areas. He's lost the educated population. He's losing the working class. I mean, it's he, so you, you're seeing this regime that is feels itself on the ropes, but can persevere and muddle through for a long time and be very dangerous while it is persevering and muddling through. And that's, I mean, I think that the comparison with late Brezhnevism, when the Soviet Union was quite aggressive, is apt. Watching Putin's State of the Nation speech yesterday, I tortured myself and watched it. He looked to me to be a bit deranged. I mean, this this speech was was a bit weird. Um, and when he, it's funny you brought up red lines, Kirill, because he said, don't cross our red lines. We decide what our red lines are. Well, of course, everybody decides what their red lines are, <laughs> including the three of us. Jamie, um, I think it's fair to say you got some fairly serious policy chops and Russian analytical chops, having served in a past life as a foreign affairs advisor to Senator Marco Rubio. Same question to you uh, that I gave to Kirill. How do you see what's happening to RFE in this broader context? Yeah, well, I, picking up on, on your analysis, I think that it says a lot about the state of Putin's confidence. I mean, especially the speed with which we have been targeted in merely six months from the start to development of legislation, of new regulations, to the imposition of that legislation, to fines, uh, moving towards a criminal, a potential set of criminal penalties. I mean, that that is warp speed that we've seen. And I think it says a lot about the insecurity of Putin and the regime around him. These are not the actions of confident officials. These are the actions of a regime that is worried about its own stability not just because of the supposed threat that we pose, but looking at the events happening around them, both internally and then the events in Belarus, which happened right before the pressure on us inside Russia uh, began to increase. I mean, I've, I was struck looking back at our 30 years of history with the Bureau in Moscow, and Kirill mentioned Yeltsin and his role. And in the interview that he actually gave to Radio Liberty right before he invited us in at the time, he said, uh, quote, I have not been allergic for a long time. I don't feel mistrust towards your radio station. I always respond to your request to be interviewed. And it's been striking to me to look back at those words coming from someone like Boris Yeltsin compared to today, where we could search for days, weeks, months to find any Russian official who would say to us, I don't feel mistrust towards you, or who would even talk to us uh, right. if we ask them for comment, try to interview them. And it just goes to show how much things have changed in the last 30 years, all you know, headed in the wrong direction, unfortunately. And it's incredibly sad, not just for the fate of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, and our ability to be there side by side with our audience, but really, I'm much more concerned about the future of Russia and the Russian people's ability to access a diverse set of media options, um, because if we're forced out, it'll be easier to target other outlets, smaller outlets, and the information space will close even more in the months and years to come. 
Yeah, no, Jamie, that was great because there is the, the these two things, the fate of RFERL and the general health of like you know, of, of Russia are not unrelated. I mean, I don't think it's an accident. I didn't realize that when Kirill was talking about Yeltsin's initial decree, which I must have walked by a bazillion times in the office there um, of August 1991, that decree was signed exactly one week after the failed coup of August 1991. And now 30 years hence, and we are in a position of RFE potentially being kicked out of Russia or forced out of Russia one way or another. And I think this bookend I mean, this provides a bookend of this period. This is the, you know, the, I mean, Russian democracy has been dying a slow death for a long time, but this, I think, would be one of the final nails in the coffin if RFERL has to leave. That is a certain signal that this is over and we should not have any illusions about it. Before we wrap up, I wanted to actually talk to you about one other thing. Russia is not the only country in the former Soviet Union where you're having problems at the moment. The Belarusian service is having problems, in that, which is another fantastic service at RFERL. They did a lot of great work um, helping me. But uh, how, how is the situation with the Belarusian service? Because I'm beginning to look at the Belarusian piece and the Russian piece as basically one piece right now. You're seeing the two civil societies. There's a lot of synergy between the civil societies. You've had this kind of creation of a Putin-Lukashenko axis which is, is only accelerating right now. How are things with the Belarusian service? Kirill may have some thoughts. I can start. The Belarusian service has been doing amazing work mm-hmm. uh, over the last year at great risk to themselves. Many of them have been detained for various periods of time covering the post-election protests. We've had one colleague, Ihar Losik, a social media consultant who was actually detained prior to the election. Yesterday actually marked his 300th day in pretrial detention under horrible circumstances, kept away from his uh, wife and young daughter for that entire period. So they've faced great challenges. They've lost their accreditations in Minsk, but they're there still trying to report as much as possible for the Belarusian people. And I do think the two are linked, and Kirill can talk more about it because he was with the company last fall when this happened, but we actually sent teams to Belarus from our uh, various Russian platforms to cover what was going on in Belarus for the Russian audience before they were then expelled by the Lukashenko regime and kicked out of Belarus. But it's a troubling set of developments, not just in Russia, but I think it has implications well beyond. Belarus is now talking about its own foreign agent law, Mm -hmm. uh, which they've started to debate and very well may pass and try to implement. Uh, We've seen similar calls in some countries in Central Asia to set up a foreign agent framework We have constant problems with accreditation in many Central Asian countries where we have bureaus. And so I do think there will be uh, broader repercussions well beyond Russia if the Kremlin succeeds in forcing the closure of our bureau. And we'll probably see other governments try to adopt a very similar approach, um, not just to target us, but to target other international news media that are trying to operate in those countries. Yeah, and I would I would add to that, Jamie. I just wrote about this this week in my weekly column for the Atlantic Council. I mean, the U.S. citizen, Yuras Zyankovich, was arrested in Russia and then extradited to Belarus and accused with this absolutely Kafkaesque, absurd charge of, of plotting to overthrow the government of Belarus and assassinate Lukashenko and his family. And this, uh, this U.S. citizen is now... Uh, you know, facing criminal charges in 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 Belarus over this. Um, so this does say that your journalists are, are vulnerable there in Belarus. So your thoughts, Kirill? And our journalists served uh, more than I believe 150 days behind bars during for covering. Uh, you know, all together uh, for covering those protests. Uh, but Belarus 
was the story number one for Russia in 2020. Yeah. Uh, it was more important than COVID-19. It was more important than anything else. You know, we saw it, and in Ukraine too. I was recently in Kiev. Belarus protests were number one story in Ukraine in 2020 as well. It was a wake-up call for everybody, uh, and it was a wake-up call probably for the Kremlin. And uh, when current time started wall-to-wall coverage of uh, Belarus protests throughout the day, in the first six weeks, we had 320 million views of that live coverage uh, in that six weeks alone. Why I say six weeks? Because the first troubles against us started exactly six weeks after the Belarus election. Mm. Um, so, but Belarus is really troubling, but there is a glimmer of hope. You know, I was born in Soviet Union. I was born in Belarus uh, and I've seen that nation developing and I actually see hope. You know, where in Russia now, you know, one can see madness. In Belarus, you see hope. Mm-hmm. But that's where, uh, you know, I remember when I interviewed Alexander Lukashenko last time, that was in 2004, he told me that phrase that I would never forget. He told me, I can't imagine myself not being a president said Alexander Lukashenko, that was 2005 probably. So in 2004 or five, so he said, I can't imagine myself not being a president. So you can clearly see Vladimir Putin saying that now. And uh, uh, so, but with Lukashenko, you actually look at the horizon and you can see the future without Lukashenko because there is this huge national consensus in Belarus. Belarusian society rejects him. And the Belarusian society will reject any Russian attempts to annex Belarus or do something with their sovereignty. But this is where our role is crucial. And again, you know, coming back again to my Soviet childhood, I remember the the thing that kept us, you know, within that illusion of Soviet propaganda was the lack of access to alternative information. Because all we knew was what the Soviet television and newspapers were telling us. Why would we think that they're lying to us? Because we did not have access to anything else. We believed in this. And as soon as we had access, when Perestroika and Glasnost came and Gorbachev came, that was a whole different story. And this whole thing collapsed as the house of cards. And this is exactly where Russia and Belarus are now. What they are trying to do is restrict that access to alternative information. So, And we see the results of that in Russia already because you know, people just start to consume all those narratives. They believe that those narratives are different, but they're all serving one purpose. And that makes them completely deranged as a society. And it's our role to prevent that and uh, the role of independent media to provide that context, to provide balance, to provide independent news. Because this is exactly, as you said, Brian, where the fate of Russia is intertwined with the fate of independent media because without independent media, we are going into the illusion that the Kremlin will create for their own people. Yeah, and I would add to that, Kirill. I mean, as you see the increasing Russification of the Belarusian state, you're seeing, and I've been looking at opinion polls about this that are just like eye-popping, you're seeing the increasing westernization of Belarusian society, and not just your activists in Minsk. I'm talking about across the board, um, where you like normally had very warm feelings towards Russia and toward Putin, 
you're seeing Putin's Putin's approval rating in Belarus dropping like a rock. You're also seeing really curious things like as to name their the historical period they would like to draw inspiration from. A strong majority of Belarusians, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was in the 60s total, favored the periods when they were not ruled by Russia, right? So favored the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or the Grand Duchy of Lithuania or the brief period, the Republic of Belarus in 19, the short-lived Belarusian Republic in 1918, and only a tiny, tiny sliver want to draw inspiration from the Soviet Union. So Belarusian society is moving west um, regardless of what the state does. And RFERL's role in that is cannot be overestimated. It's huge. Um, we're bumping up against the end. Now, this has been an awesome discussion. Um, I want to give you both uh, one just one chance to, you know, any last any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week. Well, I, I just, again, reiterate that uh, we're, despite the pressure, our team in Moscow is continuing to do their work, is continuing to deliver for the Russian audience that we're gonna double down our commitment to that audience no matter what the Kremlin uh, throws at us. And I just encourage anyone who's interested and not familiar with our work to check out rfrl.org, our English language site, where we also have uh, links and access to all of our individual language services. Mm -hmm. If people wanna look at the work of the Russian service or current time or the Belarusian service, they can find all that information there. And I would also add, you could follow it on the Twitter at rfrl.org. And I would add, I assign RFRL content to my students at the University of Texas Arlington. Um, so I'm doing my part um, for the team. Kirill, your thoughts? Well, just briefly, Brian, you you ask what can the U.S. government do? I, I, you know, I'm not in a position to talk about that, but I very much know what the Russian government can do, <laughs> uh, and they can just stop harassing us. And what they can do is they can allow their own people to think. Uh, and that's something that they're really afraid of doing. Yeah, no, we all look forward to the time when the Russian government allows its people to think again. And that's a great note to wrap it up on. It's been an awesome seeing both of you guys. Give my best to everybody at RFERL. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from the awesome city of Berlin has been RFRL's president, Jamie Fly, and also with us from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's broadcast headquarters in the beautiful Czech capital of Prague, which I miss dearly, has been Kirill Suhotsky, RFRL's regional director for Europe, which oversees the Russian service. Thank you both for a enlightening discussion. And again, please give my best to all my old colleagues. Many thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you for being here. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can follow RFERL at RFERL. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 